Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're doing well, staying healthy, happy, and safe. Later on in the show, we're going to meet Humble and Fred. If that name rings a bell, it means that you've probably listened to them on the radio or more recently listened to them on their very popular podcast. They are radio legends turned podcast legends, and we're going to help celebrate their 10th anniversary online. We talk about their history in radio, but more importantly, how they learned to adapt to the times and create a whole new career for themselves through their very popular podcast. More with Humble and Fred later. First up, let's meet the director of Night Raiders. Dennis Goulet wrote and directed Night Raiders, a timely sci-fi apocalyptic film set in the near future. In her dystopian drama, cities in North America are run by the military and all children are property of the state. This Taika Waititi executive produced film sees a Cree woman team with a group of vigilantes to free her daughter from a children's academy. Goulet, who is of Cree and Métis descent, says everything in the film's imaginary future is based on true events and has to do specifically with policies that were inflicted upon indigenous people throughout history. Night Raiders is in theaters on October 8th. I recently spoke with Dennis Goulet about the film, why she chose to make a genre dystopian film to address historical issues, and much, much more. You have a child at the academy? She was taken in the fall. <laughs> the Academy want to start the war again and now force our kids onto the front lines of it. I want to find her again on the other side. As long as we have one piece of land, they will always come for us. Is it too late? No. But we have to go now. Here's Dennis Goulet. I understand that you started working on the film back in 2013. How did the script change over the last eight years? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it just evolved in ways that were, um, I think the genesis of what it was, which was always a mother and daughter relationship was always there. And with each pass of the script, we really just clarified um you know niska's journey and also there was a i think an earlier draft where you know the film never really goes with wasis over to the academies it only stays on niska and you don't know what's happened to her but we realized the importance of you know actually going over to the other side and also you know maintaining that connection with both of the characters that are trying to find their way back to one another and the movie very effectively uh, displays uh, the horrors of things that we have uh, been learning about and hearing about in the news of residential schools, the 60s scoop, uh, all of those things are here. Why choose to tell the story in the form of genre, of a genre film? You've made a dystopian film. Uh, was that uh, a, a choice to be able to approach a historical truth uh, in uh, a slightly different way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, right before Night Raiders, as I started to develop it, I had made my first dystopian short film, which was called Awakening, which was mm. shot at the Elkin and Winter Garden theaters. And I found that moving into the genre space after only doing straight up drama opened up a kind of freedom for me as a filmmaker to really hit hard into the things that I wanted to talk about when you're no longer confined by reality. 
And then I think it also offered a layer of protection um, for mm. everyone involved when you sort of take it out of this time and space and put it somewhere imaginary. And then also, I just wanted it to be a fresh entry point into a topic, I think, that is very hard for people to grapple with over a long period of time. I think when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released their findings in 2015, you know, everyone sort of jumped on the reconciliation bit when I think we hadn't really gotten through just grappling with the horror of the truth. And I think that grappling is really important. It's, a, it's really important to acknowledge that history honestly, but I also know that there can be a fatigue around it because it is a really difficult subject matter. And so in order to hold that truth and keep the conversation going, I think it really benefits us to like just come at this in a new way. And in doing the research for this, uh, you had conversations with uh, elders and community leaders. What did you learn from those conversations, which you had with both in Canada and New Zealand? What did you take away from those conversations that informed the making of the film? Oh, so much. I mean, um, when I start making any film, I always go to my dad, who is... Um, a Cree language speaker as a first language. I talk to family members about different experiences. And I also listen to TRC hearings. And one of the most striking things in one of the hearings was listening to a father stand up in a room full of people and he was crying and telling his children how sorry he was that he wasn't able to be the proper parent that they needed because of what the residential school wow. system had done to him. And it was that I was so struck by that because it was the internalized shame where, you know, there's a system that imposed this upon families and yet it's families that then carry the weight of the damage and think it was their fault that they couldn't properly parent their kids. And that was just heartbreaking for me. I remember that was hugely heartbreaking. You're listening to my interview with Dennis Goulet. Her film, Night Raiders, is in theaters right now. The story is told uh, in many ways through the, the mother's point of view here. And I found that interesting because so many of the stories that I've heard about uh, the atrocities from residential schools have been told from the point of view of people who were uh, in the schools. Um, I thought it was interesting to flip the narrative and give us the point of view um, of a parent who lost a child uh, to this in the in this in the film. It's called the Academy, but it's essentially a residential school. And I thought that was a very interesting take on this because it it fully rounded out the story, which I had often heard from uh, just the the one side. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. Anyone who's a parent knows that it is your worst nightmare to think that your child would be taken away from you. Mm -hmm. And I think what it did to parents especially is so striking because of the way that they, you know, we, we, I'm a parent and I feel like my greatest responsibility on earth is my children. And, you know, if I were to lose them, that sense of just that you didn't do right by them or you weren't able to look after them. It is such, um, it's such an incredibly heartbreaking 
dynamic. And I think it's something that I hadn't really seen explored on film before. And I really wanted to um, explore what it is for a parent also to experience that kind of loss. You have talked about film being part of the oral tradition. Um, how do you see it that way? Is it just an extension of that for the you know 20th and 21st century? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the oral storytelling tradition is very much its own thing. It's a practice of listening. I was actually on stage with Alanisa Bompsamon yesterday um, for the TIFF Tribute Awards, and she was talking about growing up and just listening, 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 and how powerful that sound is. And then, of course, in film, you add images and music and... Um, I think the medium of film is a wonderful extension of our storytelling tradition. And you have a, a number of characters in the film who speak Cree in this. Can you tell me about that and, and what it means to you to have that language heard in the film? It, it's everything to me. Um, my dad is a Cree language speaker. He grew up speaking Cree. He learned to speak English in school. His parents were Cree speakers. And then coming down to my generation, I'm no longer a Cree speaker. And there are entire universes, philosophies, and poetry and beauty contained in the language. You know, we, when we think of where our heritage lies, you know, maybe some people think of museums. And for me, I think it's in the language. And I think that richness doesn't just offer Indigenous people something. I think if you know, others looked closer at what the language tells us about the history of this land, they would be incredibly amazed. My dad has um, like looked at references in the language that talk about the movement of the glaciers. Mm -hmm. So to me to have the Cree language on screen is everything. You know, I'm in my own process of trying to engage in, I go to Cree language camp to try to learn back the language and the language gives back in a way that is so healing and incredible. And it's one of the greatest gifts in my life. And so the opportunity to put, you know, my dad's first language on the screen and the language of Northern communities where I come from, um, and you know my language that I lost is just the the it's the best. It's incredible. That was Dennis Goulet. Night Raiders is in theaters right now. Today I'm helping radio legends Humble and Fred. That's Humble Howard Glassman and Fred Patterson celebrate ten years of the Humble and Fred podcast. These days, everybody from Bruce Springsteen and Barack Obama to Kim Kardashian West have podcasts, but 10 years ago, they were kind of uncharted territory. Humble and Fred, who, as their website says, have been entertaining Canadians since 1989 as a team on the radio, jumped into podcasting when their time in radio kind of dried up for them. It was newish technology at the time, and they dove in, creating a show that built an audience and, more importantly, has maintained that audience over 10 years. You can find out all about them at www.humbleandfredradio.com. But let's get right to it. A celebration of 10 years of doing it their own way. Here's Humble and Fred. 10 years ago, uh, tell me where you were at and why you decided to make the change into podcasting. Mr. Patterson, why don't you take this question? 
Well, we had both uh, been fired from jobs and uh, weren't ready to retire, both from uh, psychologically and financially. So we just got together and uh, thought, you know, let's get back together on some form. This podcasting thing seems to be something. Mm -hmm. At the very least, it will be exercise to prepare ourselves to get another radio job. So we did the we did the podcast, exercise that broadcasting muscle, hoping it would turn into a radio job. And uh, here we are 10 years later. It just happened to me looking at the, the cover of the Toronto Star from this week, 10 years ago, and it, or the entertainment section. And it was a picture of Fred and I, and it was called The Pod Couple. Kind of <laughs> a cute little play on words. And I thought at the time that picture was taken, it was actually before we'd started doing the podcast for a living. And I thought, you know, we could have never known what this was going to lead to but i know when we took that picture fred that both of us thought it'll probably or hopefully it would lead to a radio job the irony is now it's led to this job doing a podcast a job that we didn't even think was um was available for us 10 years ago well it wasn't a job 10 years ago no exactly really i mean you guys have sort of pioneered that let's set the stage a little bit though for people who are listening outside of Ontario, and there's a lot of them, uh, that may not be aware of the legend of Humble and Fred. So you guys worked together for a very long time on the radio yes, uh, and uh, doing morning shows and that kind of thing. Just give me a, a quick rundown of that, and then we'll, we'll talk more about the podcast. Well, the Humble and Fred show started in 1989 on uh, CFNY-FM, or The Edge in Toronto, 102.1, and uh, we had a run from 1989 to 2001 on that station, then hopped over to AM uh, to do an all-talk station on Mojo Radio. That lasted a couple of years. Then we went to Mix 99.9 in Toronto, another company. <laughs> that lasted a couple of years. And then the firing started, Richard. Yep. And, uh, so really, we have a pretty good legacy as far as radio goes in Toronto. People tend to know who we are. Yep. And that, that helped us with the podcast. We started the podcast with a brand that was in place. Uh, I'm only laughing because Freddie and I sort of, uh, unlike a lot of people in radio, aren't we? we were sort of proud of the fact that we went a long time <clears throat> yes. without getting fired. <laughs> and then the joke is, once people started firing us, they couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, just got, they just got such a feel for it that it became quite a delicious game for people in the radio business. Well, I love a, a quote from the movie Mank about Herman Mankiewicz. And someone says... Uh, Herman, you've been fired from writing uh, another movie. And he goes, dudes, I've never not been fired. (laughs) (laughs) So so here we were, we got fired. I was out of a job. Freddie was out of a job. And we hadn't done the Humble and Fred show together. We had done a few podcasts. In fact, for historical perspective, uh, we did our very first podcast in uh, in December of 2006. And we did about 10 of them, just one-offs. Once in a while, we'd get together. But we decided, and I often quote Fred by saying, we decided that we were going to do this like a job, not like a lot of podcasts. Even in those days, they would do it once in a while. We did it every day, and day in and day out. Yes, with an eye, hopefully someone in radio would remember us. But then it became this thing, and 10 years later, it is now our jobs. And we're one of the few podcasters that just do podcasting now for a living you're listening to my interview with podcast legends humble and fred find out more at www.humbleandfredradio.com fred how do you think that you cut through the noise 
Uh, everyone has a podcast. There are so many of them out there. Now you've got the benefit of a name brand and you've been around for 10 years, but 10 years ago, you had to cut through a lot of noise still. Yeah, I, 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 as I mentioned, we had a brand, Hummel and Fred, and then when we got back, we were lucky. We had connections like uh, Vinay Manon in the Toronto Star gave us that article that Howard referred to. That really helped. And then we hooked up with our buddy Bill Hertz, who was a salesman, who was the sales manager at Standard Radio for years. And we thought, boy, if we have a professional guy selling for us, maybe out of the gate we can get something just to sustain us. And really, we were, and I, I don't want to say lucky, because you use the word pioneers. Yeah, we got in early, and there weren't a lot of people like us doing podcasts the way we were doing it. Mm -hmm. Everything just seemed to fall into place. We did it daily. We got the right publicity. We had a brand. We had a sales guy who could go out and talk to people and actually have them listen based on his reputation. And you know what? We started cashing checks just a few short months after we started. Yeah, but to be fair, we weren't cashing a lot of checks, Richard. We didn't really make... Here's the thing. We didn't do this for a living for a good year or so, which <laughs> isn't a long time, but it took us a good solid year before we were getting enough revenue to kind of go, okay, maybe we can do this for a while. And now 10 years later, you know, the quote I always say is, it's certainly not the most humble and Fred money we've ever made, but it's the funnest most satisfying money we've ever made because it's just him and I and our little group of people that do it. One thing I will say though, Howard, yes, we weren't cashing a lot of checks and not for a lot, but we were still cashing checks yes. when people said it could not be done. No, you could true. not, you could not monetize a podcast. And even to this day, here we are podcast, you know, part of the vernacular. Now there's people doing them and not cashing checks and still wondering how do you do a podcast and, and cash a check. Oh, so I'll tell you, there's 99% the... of the people that are doing podcasts aren't, aren't cashing checks. Well, and I'll tell you, Richard, 100% yeah. of the people that ever call Freddie and I about podcasting, mm -hmm. the first question is, how do we make money at it? And I say, well, good luck with that. It's really, yeah. it's not very easy, as you well know. You have to be, like anything else, especially in the entertainment industry, Howard and I often laugh, you know, you're coddled in radio. You know, you walk in in the morning, your microphone's set up and... Yeah. Everything's there for you, and somebody gives you a paycheck every two weeks or drops it into your account. Radio people traditionally aren't used to doing their own work, and a lot of people have tried, but then it's like they're not prepared to do what it takes to make this work. And, you know, to our credit, we were. Well, and right, Chris, you, you get, I call you Cross now because I'm mm -hmm. trying to Crossy. Cool, <laughs> but Richard, you get it because you came from a world of hustling. Yep. Like you've always been a hustler, whether it's books or television and now podcasting and then your radio shows. But a lot of radio people, you get into the business and comics are like this too, where you kind of get it and you, you sort of go to a few, you know, you have people doing stuff for you. But another joke with Freddie and I is we were setting up our stuff early on, maybe a year or so into the, uh, into the show. And we were putting the equipment together for some appearance. And I looked at Freddie and I said, didn't we used to have people do this stuff for us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wasn't this somebody else's job at some point? But as I say, for me, and I, I think I speak for Fred, it's been so personally satisfying. And beside the fact that creatively, by far the best radio I've ever been involved in is this. Well, so why do you think it is since 1989 uh, that people have wanted to listen to the two of you. What is it about the two of you together that makes people want to tune in? 
Well, I think it's our, well, obviously it's our, our beautiful singing voices. Yeah, that's um, right. And good looks. You know, it's a great question. And I, I think, you know, we, and we sort of touched on it on a show recently. We're really blessed. And I'll use that word that we've got great listeners that caught on early. Mm. And uh, a lot of people have listened. This is, sounds crazy, but we've done 10 years of podcast, nearly 3,000 episodes. And we have people that have listened to every single one of them. Mm-hmm. And then there's there's a sense that what you're hearing is how we actually feel about things. I would say both of us are pretty good. And, I, and again, yeah, it sounds like I'm bragging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're both pretty good storytellers. And when we were on the radio and having to play eight songs an hour and all the commercials, we used to ask our program directors, can we talk more? Because we have stuff to say. We're not like other announcers that just like to give the time and weather and some goofy little thing going on, you know, down the street and then back to the music. We've been good, good storytellers. And this whole podcasting thing really lends itself. That's what it's all about, really. Isn't it the podcast world storytelling? Yeah. And from that aspect, it's come together for us as well, because it doesn't matter, man, day after day after day, whether we have a guest or we don't, Howard and I can fill time. And I think do it in such a way people keep coming back for more. Let's go back to 10 years. I was on your first shows 10 years ago, one of the first ones. And, and I remember a couple of things. I remember that it sounded like Humble and Fred and the Humble and Fred that I had listened to on the radio. And it sounded like you guys. One of the things, though, that that made my ears stand up a little bit was the amount of swearing that was on the show <laughs> in those early days. Yes. And I think that there was this uh, like freedom that you felt after years of having worked for big corporations and and you know mainstream uh, media. Uh, all of a sudden, you just let a torrent go, and I thought, <laughs> well, that'll calm down after a while. I'm sure. Yes, it did. It's almost embarrassing. Yes, because that freedom is there and you just, you know, and again, we unleashed it and we had those conversations. It's like, uh, you know what I mean? When you can swear, doesn't mean you have to swear. And now the podcast, again, we're free to swear like we hardly do it. You know, we always had that governor and radio that we'd swear like troopers off air. And the minute the mics went on, there was just some switch. Well, you know what it's like, Richard, you wouldn't swear. And I think we're sort of back into that. Yeah, that I, sort of rhythm. I would say now, it's, I'm laughing because the early days of uh, the Krauss Man, that's what I call him, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. coming on the show, that was when we were unfettered. It was just on, it was like a, the, it was a novelty to, and at that time, both Freddie and I had been in the business 30 years to actually yeah. was lean into a microphone and say these words. But now it's very much like a, a regular conversation that we would have on any radio station, except every so often for effect. Yeah. Yeah. We might swear, but it's not, mm-hmm. it's not, if you listen to it now, and Richard was on our show recently, it's, it's, it's the same conversation we're having now. It's the 10th anniversary. Uh, are there any big plans for the 10th anniversary? Will there be champagne, there be ele- dancing <laughs> elephants? Do you want to know if there, are you asking, is there going to be cake? <laughs> um, you know, as Freddie said at the beginning, we had some plans to get some people into our studio for the first time in a couple of years. But, uh, you know, the Delta variant, eh? the Delta variant may uh, kibosh those. But, you know, I think we're going to recognize the people that have supported us. Certainly, we've got a Patreon group that supports us. I mean, it's bizarre to us that people give us money every month. 
just because they like the show. And I can tell you, again, having worked for a radio station since the 1970s, Richard, when you were just a baby, but having worked for stations and now having worked for myself and my partner, it's it's imminently it's just way more satisfying mm. as a as a whole thing. So we're just going to recognize that. Plus the sponsors that have supported us, we've mm-hmm. got some sponsors that have been with us for now three and four and five years. It's just bizarre. You're listening to my interview with podcast legends Humble Howard Glassman and Fred Patterson. For more information, check out www.humbleandfredradio.com. And one other point I'd like to make, sort of a. Um, uh, a tipping point, whatever you want to call it. You know, Richard, as, as we explained, we first get into it just to exercise our chops, exercise that muscle to get a radio job. And along the way, the podcast has been put on the radio, like News Talk 1010, where you are, and Funny Sirius 20. XM, and, we did it for five years. But, you know, we came to this point last March where we didn't need radio. Like, think about that. We got into podcasting to be to continue as radio guys. Now as radio guys, we don't need radio because podcasting has changed. It's it's different. We we well, we don't. It's its own medium now. It's its own medium. We don't radio now for us would just get in the way. Isn't that something? Yeah, the only constant is change, right? The yeah. only thing <laughs> that keeps changing is change. And uh, well, in the terms of word is content, like you, you mm-hmm. know, now people can get content curated content whether it's listening to your show or ours it's because they chose it Mm -hmm. it's not something that was they had to go and get it which is why podcast listeners are so different than radio listeners please i interrupted you what do you well and why i think that there are uh so many podcasts there is a podcast out there for whatever you're into and Mm -hmm. and you can you can find them and as you go deeper and deeper and deeper into the well uh, you find these podcasts that for me are uh, incredible. I, there's one that I've started listening to recently, and it is the story of a guy uh, who is walking down a back alley in Toronto, found a box of books, pulls one out, and it was called Great Britons of the 1700s or something. Wow. So that's a funny old thing. So he takes it home, and now every week he reads part of a chapter, and he has a comedian in to talk about it. And I thought, oh, whatever. It's so great. It's so much fun. And I'm not really a history guy, but that is a show that if you tried to pitch that on the radio or television would never make it, but it's a fantastic podcast. Well, and that's the thing about uh, the podcast idea is that whatever subject you're interested in, you can hear people having conversations about it. During the pandemic, I rewatched all seven seasons of The West Wing, and then I found out that a couple of the actors have a West Wing podcast, which I love now because it's like them talking about particular episodes and the insights, and you'd, you'd think like, what? How could yeah. that be? But it's to me, it's fascinating because it's something I chose. Yeah, yeah. Another another thing about the comparisons, you know, there was this old thing in radio where announcers weren't supposed to talk about themselves because the listener really didn't care. And Howard and I always, we were never comfortable with that because often the, the reaction you would get, most of the reaction would be about things you had talked about to do with your life. And the podcast is the same thing. We can have guests on and we can talk about this and that, but often the stories we tell about ourselves and our families are the ones that get the most reaction. The the first job I ever got fired from, and I needed to be fired. I wasn't very good at it. Um, The the guy pulled me into his office. He told me this thing that has stuck with me ever since. He said, people just want to hear about people. And anything that I have done that has been successful 
whether it's uh, one of the television shows or any of my books and that sort of thing is always mm -hmm. done from the angle that I'm telling stories about people. And that's why I think those interviews and those things have been popular because people want to hear about people. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I said it early on and, and it certainly turned out to be true that there is a human beings crave authenticity mm. and, and there is an in, once you hear a podcast, it's almost like when HBO, uh, when cable first started showing television shows where people swore and were grittier, it's hard to go back to watch network television. Well, once you've heard the Humble and Fred show like this, or like at the conversations we have with you and other guests or ourselves, it would be hard to go back and have Freddie and I going, hey, everyone, here's this uh, sound garden, and we'll be back in four and a half minutes. We're feeling great today. Hope you are too. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Like we, we just, and, oh, by the way, if you're listening for lots of money, we would consider it. But uh, in actual fact, we it's once you it's hard to unhear the authenticity of a podcast. And when I listen to regular radio now, which is rare, it just sounds to me like old fashioned television from, you know, from before there was swearing on TV. I enjoy talking to those guys. That was Humble and Fred. That's Humble Howard Glassman and Fred Patterson of the Humble and Fred podcast. You can find out all the details that you need at www.humbleandfredradio.com. And why not tune in and help them celebrate their 10th anniversary on October 14th? It'll be a lot of fun. Even if you can't be there in person, which I don't think anyone can be right now, uh, you can celebrate with them via your online hookup. Every now and again, I like to dig back into the interview vault and pull out something from a few years ago that I really enjoyed. This is Hugh Jackman. I interviewed him the day after I hosted the Canadian premiere of a film called Real Steel. In the movie was a young guy whose family happened to be in the audience that night. So I began this interview with Hugh Jackman, asking him if he had ever had that moment when his entire family gathered to see him in something. And it got us off on a tangent. Here's Hugh Jackman. Yeah, I do. Probably the first time I did something my entire family came to was when I was in London doing Oklahoma at the National Theatre. And probably for me at that point, my dreams as an acting student were weirdly around the Royal Shakespeare Company, the National, the English. I held the English standard up to be the pinnacle. And when I was at the National Theatre, uh, I, I was like, wow, that's kind of, that's my dream. I, I I haven't really worked anything else out. It wasn't so much Hollywood. So when my whole family were there, that was that was very, very special for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I had, it was a bit of an accident, but I did a show called The Boy From Oz um, and Peter, I, Allen. Peter Allen. Now, I'd been offered it four years before and it turned it down because I'd made this choice, this strategy to get into film, right? right. Which is what I was, I was always an actor and had somehow got into musicals. Anyway. When I saw the show, I, I knew it was going to be great, by the way. When I saw the show, it was as I knew, and I felt sick in the stomach because I was like, you didn't follow your gut instinct. You know, you thought you were doing the right thing, and, and it was really a difficult night for me, and it stayed with me. When they asked me, I think it was three or four years later, I said yes. I hadn't even told my agent about it. I said, yes, I'm in. And then we opened. We got really bad reviews. I mean, we were killed. We got killed. And there was a real moment of like, will we make it or will we not? Will we survive the winter? 
um, we, we, it then picked up and actually became a massive hit. And the people who reviewed it badly a year later were reviewing it as this great smash hit. It was kind of interesting. But two things I learned from that. Even after the bad reviews, even after... I, I still knew in my gut that it worked. I was on stage. I, I kind of didn't believe him. I was like, hmm, I think you got it wrong. I, it's your opinion, fine, but I think you got it wrong. And secondly, if we failed... I was okay with it. Right. I have done other things, which obviously I don't want to tell yeah, you yeah, specifically, yeah. Yeah. where I'd been not so sure, maybe I thought it was strategically the right thing, and when it came out, it wasn't what I wanted or what I thought it might have been. Right. It's really hard to live with. It's hard to face yourself in the mirror because right. you think you did it all for the wrong reason. So that was the turning point for me. You seem to have this kind of unique career mm. for me now where you can make the Wolverine movies and then the, in the very next breath, do something, you know, all singing, all dancing. I don't know that there's any other career out there like it. It started more as a way to stave off unemployment. I'll, I'll be honest. When I came out of drama school, I was like, I'm going to do anything I can, man, just to keep working. And look, you're in Australia. Maybe similar here, but probably not because of the proximity to America. But in Australia, they probably make, at best, 15 movies a year. You cannot... If you do one, if you do two a year, you're like the biggest working actor in Australia. Right. And the budgets are probably small. Of course, know, there's okay. no living to be made, yeah. really. You cannot say, I'm going to be film actor. I'm not doing TV. Yeah. I'm not going to do theatre or this or that. You've got to do everything. Right. Um, and that's... So I kind of... I had a facility to do a number of different things. So I just kept working at all of them as a way to kind of spread the yeah. <laughs> chances of unemployment, yeah. you know. So... It sort of fell into a strength. It became, I, I didn't really mean it to be that, except that I found a drama school. I was happy and loved that eclecticism and the ability. Like in, in drama school, you do Shakespeare, to movement, to circus skills, to singing all in one morning. Yeah. And I know a lot of people hated it, and, and I've, I reveled in it. I loved it. So... That's sort of, it's weird how it's evolved. You know? You're listening to my interview with Hugh Jackman. Have you always been someone who's just jumped in and said, you know what, if I'm yeah. going to do this, I'm going to be the guy that does, you know. I'm gonna do I've always thing. been the jump in first guy. Yeah. Uh, there's a number of reasons why. My dad taught me an amazing work ethic. He never took one day off in his life. Now, he had five kids he was bringing up on his own. So, you know, if anyone deserved a day off, it was my old man. <laughs> He never did. He just had that, just keep going, working, work hard. I mean, old school. Like, if you've got a headache, there was no, like, take a headache tablet. It's like, well, why have you got a headache? Get a bit early. You know, it's a whatever. So I learned that from him. Also, I think as a kid, being the youngest, you're terrified of missing out on things. Like, the whole, your whole life feels like, oh, I'm not allowed to do that. Well, my brothers are doing for another two years, which is an eternity. So I always wanted to do stuff and not be left out. And I was quite a fearful kid, which I hated. I was scared of the dark. I was scared of heights. I was, there was a period of time my mum had left. I was always the first one home. I would not even go into the house until someone else came home. So I would sit out on the stoop, right? You know, and I, I hated it. So I've always had this fear of fear. And if, like a drama school, you know, it's sort of, it's a weird thing to think back now, but it's a pressure kind of situation. People get kicked out of drama school. You're constantly being judged how you're doing. Are you progressing? Are you not? And how you look, I guess, and all that stuff, right? That, not so much. Right. Not a drama school. Not a mine, anyway. Right. Right. But you were constantly being judged. So there were 
almost every day, all right, let's get up and do this monologue, sing this song, do it in front of everybody. I noticed I was always first. I never wanted to sit there waiting for, and, and I would see some people, they were like, mm, don't pick me first, don't put my, you know, I want to see five, six other people. And I'm not saying that out of courage, it was more like, I hate this feeling, I'm getting up. I'm just going to get up and I'm going to do it, you know? And, and so I remember one of, the, one of the girls in class said to me, after about a year and a half, I remember Jeanette, she said, you always get up first. Like, you know, why don't you let other people get up? I says, anyone can get up. I said, I said, if you want to get up, you put your hand up. I've got no problem. I says, but I'm not going to wait five seconds. I said, because I just want to do stuff. Okay. So, and I remember hanging back for a little while. I said, all right. So I'd wait five seconds. I count to five in my head. All right, all right I'm up. That's it. <laughs> it, was, it was too uncomfortable to sit yeah. stewing over that so yeah. anyway I, I don't think i've told anyone else that it's interesting when i started acting uh i was the dunce of the class this is i went to two drama schools i did one for a year i was definitely i was way too perky and hey everyone else had beaten leather jackets was smoking in every break seemed to be way more tortured to carried their demons on their face you know and i was seemed way too nah, nah, nah. I just didn't fit in, and every time I did something in class, I could see the teachers rolling their eyes. It was, I wasn't sure what it was, but I was not cutting it. And I never, it was a very lonely feeling, and kind of best thing that could have happened to me, because, you know, I saw, have you seen the Brady Six? Yeah. All right. I watched that the other day, and it really gave me an insight. It's almost like I still feel like I'm 191st pick in the draft. Yeah probably from that beginning of drum school, that feeling of it. And the way it turned around was I finally stopped caring about what the teachers thought. So I've never forgotten that, but there's always that feeling of like, okay, I've got to work harder than everyone else. It's not like I'm born with, I'm not born Philip Seymour Hoffman. I've got to just work harder. So I'm prepared to do it. That was my From the Vault interview with Hugh Jackman. He's always such a pleasure to speak to. If you ever have the chance to interview anyone, your choice of anyone, choose him. He's a great conversationalist. Big thanks to Dennis Goulet for stopping by today to talk about her film, Night Raiders. Also want to send out a big thanks to Humble and Fred. Check out their 10th anniversary on October 14th. Of course, though, my biggest thanks goes to you, as always, for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon.